This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Running Away! Ghosts in the Unicode! Science fiction cinema of the silent era! And the Schleswig-Holstein question... Did you know that both of us, Ken and Robin, have written books and games for Atlas Games? This month, they're featuring products by us on sale. We're so honored. Atlas Games is doing a special for our listeners only. Use coupon code KENANDROBIN23, that's spell out A-N-D in Ken and Robin, to save 20% on your games and books at atlas-games.com. Like Robin's action-packed feng shui and conspiracy-drenched over the edge. Or Ken's mini-mythos series of Cthulhu-themed children's books, like Goodnight Azathoth and Clifford the Big Red God. So who writes our banter in these Atlas ads? Our good friend Michelle Nephew. Sometimes I think that power goes to her head a little. Like last month where she had me singing Christmas carols for Weird Little Elf? Yeah, I kind of noticed that. Yeah, this month Atlas Games is running a sale on products that two of us have written for them. But what does that have to do with me repeating, Michelle is a goddess and we bow before her greatness? Her script cues are even worse. I can't stop hitting myself. Ken, just because it's in the script notes doesn't mean you have to actually slap yourself. It's it's audio. It's a podcast. Our listeners can't see you. I don't feel so good. The things we do for our listeners. But at least this month, they're getting 20% off on books and games written by the two of us. Just head over to atlas-games.com for your exclusive discount on feng shui, over the edge, and mini mythos products. Then use the coupon code KENANDROBIN23 at checkout. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into, hey, hey, where's where's everyone going? You, look you, you look just... over, can, can, there's a shadowy figure, it's like a Nazgul and a dinosaur and a cyborg. We gotta get out of here! But Robin, if we're getting out of here, we'll be fleeing the confines of the gaming hut instead of stalwartly discussing what it is that we were doing when we were fleeing, which is to say, running away, Robin. It's it's literally... It's so literal, It's it stopped you from going on and explaining exactly how literal it is. It is the very basis, I think you're about to say, of horror. It is a staple element of horror. Yet, in role-playing horror games, can the characters often don't run away. Or when they do, it's not all of that big a thing. But if you think of horror literature, and especially horror cinema... Running away is a big chunk of the action in that. So in some in some movies, it's all of the action. It's all of the action. So I guess the first question we have before us is GMs. If you are thinking, well, the problem with this is that the characters are running away. They should be running away. And how do we? Should we try and bridge the gap between role playing and other horror forms in encouraging more running away? First of all, and. I guess if we decide we should, we should then figure out how to have more of it in our games. Well, I mean, I think we begin with the problem that the art form's initial assumptions mitigate against running away. There are lots and lots of staying and fighting rules. There's lots of fun tactical stuff to do if you stay and fight. But there haven't been any games, even Call of Cthulhu, that really address running away in the same sort of tactical depth as they do staying and fighting. And so therefore you open a game, there's 30 pages devoted to fighting. There's half a page devoted to running away. Which do you suppose happens more often? Uh, the default is you have to stay and fight it out with the Shoggoth or the vampires or the whatever they are. And that then produces this sort of dungeons and dragons, old school rhythm of, you know, go through the creepy corridor fight. And that is the, the narrative rhythm that has been baked into the DNA of RPGs almost from day zero. And the trouble is that even the Call of Cthulhu didn't really break that up because it doesn't provide particularly good chase mechanics, particularly evocative chase mechanics, and it doesn't provide stuff to do while you're being chased which is the really important part if you're going to get people to want to do it at the table. Otherwise, it's just a series of make your constitution roll 
oh, you failed. You were eaten by a Biaki. And then that's it. And that's, that's, uh, narratively and ludically less interesting than even a doomed combat, right? Right. To its credit, Call of Cthulhu, uh, even the very early editions, does have GM advice saying yeah, that it's says, perfectly okay <laughs> for you to run away and then dynamite the cave with the creature in it or call in the FBI with the submarines to blast Innsmouth. But again, as you suggest, that's a line of GM advice. And it's one I think people have taken to heart. There's certainly a countermeasure within old school role playing, even old school F20 that says, well, the character should absolutely run away from certain threats. I just confront them with random threats of any level because that's realistic. But as you say, in order to make this more of a thing, I think there needs to be more structure and more fun. Now, fortunately, uh, in horror, we don't so much have the distinct character class markers so that we don't have to think of running away feats for the fighter and running away feats for the rogue and escape spells for the magic user. Although that would also be kind of cool, I think, Mm -hmm. change F20 a, a fair bit. But we still need to, as you suggest, come up with interesting mechanics in order to have it feel tactical and have it take enough time at the table because even something that's just a a series of rolls now granted you know combat is extremely collapsed in yellow king so and incorporates running away as one of the combat objectives and so it integrates it that way but that's still in a very stripped down game and and i think uh speaking of horror and running away the game that mechanically is most about that is Knights Black Agents because yeah. you're a secret agent on the run. So how did you solve that problem there? And how would you export that to other horror games in general? I mean, the problem of the chase sequence is you have to be able to know when it's over. Otherwise, it just keeps going forever because in theory, you're always running away. Right. It doesn't feel conclusive. And I think players, right. uh, especially if they've been raised on F20 assumptions, uh, feel cheated in a way that the characters don't feel cheated in a movie when they're running away from Freddy or Jason. And and that's why there is an overt gamification element of it with the lead stat in which when you've extended your lead to 10 on a regular chase, then you win. And that's a victory for you. You got away. And knowing that you have a, a stat to play to, I think is a big part of, of getting you as a gamer to see it as a constrained event in the game And then once you've seen it as a constrained event, you can start thinking of it as a scene. And for that, I added all of the sort of, you know, thrilling moments that show up in a chase, putting that very much on the GM to provide them, and then adding things that players can do while running or chasing somebody, including, you know, shooting at the... Uh, at their uh, opponent or using investigative skills to make running away better and ways you can change it up tactically with swerves and bursts of speed and all the other things that we think of. And the goal was to have a chase scene that felt not as good as a chase scene in a movie because nothing in, you know, nothing around a gaming table, let's rephrase, will ever feel as good as the chase scene in Ronin, but to at least be able to capture some of that ludically as as much as you can, right? Right. And another thing to recall is that in almost any classic chase that you can think of, well, not almost any, but in many, many classic chases, the people fleeing are also trying to hurt the thing that they're running from. Yeah. What they're not doing is standing their ground and fighting it until it's dead. Mm-hmm. So you can also have, you know, shooting backwards at the vampires or, mm-hmm. you know, picking up this bale of trash and hurling it at them or, you know, oh, look, we're running past the caustic live vats. Let's tip one of those over. So essentially, you are trying to defeat the pursuers. You're trying to reduce their willingness to pursue points. That might not be literally killing them or not, probably not. But mm-hmm. I think, again, as, as you suggest, like in theory, a another system that would allow for this is one where you are rolling to see what the flight deterrence effect of whatever move that you made was. And that can be just you, you know, increasing the difference in space between you and the thing that you're running away from. But very often, especially in horror movies, uh, horror monsters can walk very slowly and you can run very fast. (laughs) Yet still, they keep coming at you until you do something decisive. Mm -hmm. And that something decisive might simply be get on a boat or hop on a plane or, you know, close the blast doors so that they can't get through. But 
generally speaking, there is some other sort of decisive event. And I think that's often the missing element that when we're conceptualizing chase, that we fail to think of what's the climactic moment where players can all pump their fists in the air because, you know, they did decisively get away. And that's what's mechanically represented by, you know, extending the lead out to 10. And once you've done that, then narratively, you just say, and what happened at 10 that makes this combat over? It did, you know, you crossed the border. Did you shut the blast doors? Did you reach holy ground? Whatever it is, that's what that finish line represents mechanically in the same way that getting someone to zero hit points represents mechanically them stopping fighting you, whether that means, oh, they've just fainted like in a proper Silver Age Supers game or a G.I. Joe game, or no, they're dead and spattered all over the floor like in good old F-20. Right. Now, it must be said that chases, typically even in horror, occur during the first and second act. Mm -hmm. In the third act, there usually is a decisive confrontation where you have run away long enough to find the thing that you need or to simply be the final girl, but in in the thing that translates more into role-playing, you find the thing you need in order to actually fight it and finish it off. So I think it's probably still very unlikely that you're going to uh, have a scenario that satisfyingly ends simply with you just just getting away from the creature. You have to deal with it decisively in some way. And that way can be you directly... Uh, you know, pouring the liquid nitrogen on it and then hitting it with a hammer or calling in the airstrike. But it has to be something decisive and the monster has to explode or at least sort of sink decisively beneath the waves. And you know, they're not going to be back until, you know, 18 months later when the sequel comes out. Right. I can imagine, certainly, as can you, as can most people listening to this, a thoroughly satisfying Cthulhu scenario or even nice black agent scenario that is just entirely a chase structurally. A uh, chase built of smaller chases, a chase punctuated with the investigation necessary to know how to end the chase, and never has a straight-up fight in it, except, you know, with the occasional obstacle that's in the way of you getting out of there. But I think that you then have to have some sort of a way to communicate to the players, this is, um I mean, you can communicate that this thing is unsurvivable by having it, you know, devour the cops that they call, but the degree to which you can sort of establish that surviving is the end is something that is, I think, left to role-playing, left to the encounters, left to the old priest who says, oh, you know, this is St. Andrew's night. No vampire can be killed on St. Andrew's night. Your hope is just stay alive until sunrise. Right. It's St. Andrew's morning. And so that, right, that's, yeah. it, as you point out, that's another... Uh, thing that if you just run out the clock mm-hmm. uh, until the you know the curse evaporates or or what have you that that I think can be a, a satisfying ending providing that you as the GM can give the clock a, sort of a palpable feeling right that exactly. there has to always be a a threat or a resource running down that uh, is threatening their ability to keep going until that time and so you know they can be checking their watch you can be Oh, the faint glimmers of sunlight. Oh, no, that's just a plane. Sorry, that's not sunlight at all. You can play with that a bit as well. And 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 again, there's nothing to stop you from saying that the stupid monster steps out into the light and, and gets burned because you've enraged it so much. You don't mm-hmm. have to. Uh, you do, I think, still in any case want to make that, you know, as climactic as, as possible. And if you're, you know, because also, you know, staying in, in a haunted house, even hunkering down while things come at you in a way is like a chase where nothing moves. It's an immobile chase, <laughs> right? Yeah. And that is sort of the, the core element of other sorts of horror. Uh, a lot of your possession horror, the exorcist, Karnacki, those horror where you are in a, a, a chase in that you are engaged in a, you know, a contest that is not an overt combat, but that you you have to provide tension to somehow. And, without the ability of prose or film, that tension has to come in game mechanics. But Robin, if we're having a chase where nothing moves, I think we may have survived this segment until St. Andrew's morning and can flee into the safety of a commercial behind these beautiful blast doors. The skies above New Olympus are patrolled by caped crusaders, but these superior beings are far from heroes. They wield their powers with reckless disregard, 
serving the interests of corporate overseers and silencing those who oppose their will. You are Clara Keenig, investigative journalist for the Pedestrian Newspaper. You intend to prove that the privileged superhuman elite do not yet hold a monopoly on justice. Welcome to Alter Egomania, the newest setting for the Gumshoe 1-to-1 system. Featuring a quick start rules guide, printable problem and edge cards, and a starter adventure. Alter Egomania contains everything you need to run a one-player, one-GM game set in a universe of corrupt superheroes. Exclusively available in PDF. The exciting format unaffected by global paper shortages. That can't get stuck in customs. That's waiting for you right now. At the Pelgrane Press web store. Or drive through RPG. The dictionary that I am holding in one hand, the iPad full of Google search terms in the other, and the general air of lexicographical happiness tell us we're uh, once more in a, a relatively rare hut, the Word Hut. And, uh, and this time we've been summoned into the Word Hut, uh, which of course has words written in wallpaper all over its walls, uh, by a beloved backer, Eric Saltwell, who uh, says that Unicode, the standard for representing characters as numbers inside a computer, and thanks for that defining, appreciate that, has several entries for Japanese characters that don't actually exist in the language. No one knows what they mean or how they should be pronounced. And they were added based on a 1978 standard created by Japan's Ministry of Economy, Trade, and Industry. And what was the ministry up to? And so, Ken, you found that pretty much the only source in English <laughs> yeah. on this topic. Lots of stuff in Japanese language Wikipedia, if you're right. curious. Is it dampcraft, craft with a K dot com, which is the blog of Paul McCann, who's a game developer, and he's also a specialist in natural language processing. And he delved deep into the whole issue of, of these ghostly characters, these ghosts in the typing machine, as it were. As it were. Yeah. And this is from him with a, as I say, a little bit of Google Translate on Japanese language Wikipedia. So my apologies to all Japanese linguists out there. There are going to be a, maybe a couple of hiccups, but this is close enough for gaming, as we like to say. Uh, so anyway, the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry came up with something called the JIS 0208 standard, which was their sort of standard list of kanji, Japanese characters, so that you could, you know, make sure that as we're, you know, putting things on screens and beginning to, you know, get our computer set type, we would be able to have a full list and the ministry could make sure that you can spell everything in Japanese and there won't be a ugly problem down the line. And they turned this over to, you know, uh, some guys there at the ministry and they bang up the list. And the list turns out to contain about 42 URI emoji, which is ghost characters, uh, literally. And these are the characters that, as Eric points out, they don't exactly list exist in the language. No one knew what they were. And it being a government program, it was ignored for a while. But in 1997, some bright spark said, let's look into these ghost characters. And they dug around and they found out that about 30 of them were just really archaic old characters that no one had used in a long old time. So kudos, I would say, to uh, good, uh, the good folks at Medi. Right. So if you need to transcribe an ancient scroll, you're good. Exactly. If, if you need to make a, a computerized version of a demon-killing sutra, you Which can you do, do it. Which you do. Exactly. You definitely do. Very much. So good for you, Medi. So they, they, they dug around, like I say, 30 of those were just super antiquated characters, and about 12 true ghost characters were left. And then, you know, someone, you know, just wipes the sweat off their brow and readjusts their glasses and dives back in. And some of those 12 characters were from single characters that are only found in a book called The Overview of National Administrative Districts, which was one of the source volumes for getting all the kanji back in 1978. And this is a seven volume set of every place name in Japan. And uh, some of those place names are hyper local. And the founder of that town or whatever just went, I'd like to have this be the symbol of yeah. Because that way I can copyright it as an app. Uh, well, also, you know, oh, we are health spring, not health spring like those jerks over the hill. Exactly. And so you have to be able to spell health 
with a, a special zip or whatever uh, thing. So that's where a lot of them came from. Some were hilarious copy errors. You can't really say typos, but they were copy errors. And uh, one, for example, was when they, they didn't have an on-site calligrapher, which seems like a mistake. So what they were trying to make a different character and they pasted two characters on top of each other to make it. And the paste line showed up as a line. And that's what got added to a character. So that's sort of the investigation into, into the ghost characters, the, the 12 that are left are still sort of canonically ghosty. And Unicode, of course, absorbs this because in 1991, which is before this investigation, they import Chinese, Japanese, and Korean kanji, what they call CJK, sometimes CJKV, because they uh, Vietnamese also has a, a kanji, although they mostly use Roman uh, alphabet now. They imported all of those, including not just the Japanese ghost characters, but a whole raft of Chinese ghost characters because the Chinese government refused to cooperate with Unicode saying, we're making our own list. Your list will be wrong. Also, you're assuming that Japanese and Korean kanji are as good as our kanji. How dare you? Yeah, stubbornly going your own way on a technological issue, a mistake they would never again repeat. Never again. The only time the communist Chinese government has ever been jerks for no reason. So the, the Unicode... I don't know if Unicode has then gone and followed the 97 purge. I doubt it because you've already assigned it a number. It's not like you're doing anything else. Once something's in Unicode, it's not coming out. Right. And of course, you've still got all these wacky uh, Chinese characters that are there. So I feel like the opportunity within Unicode, whatever that gameable opportunity might be, he said, hinting about the second half of this segment, is still there. Right. So we're going to have to brush back past the obvious answer to this which is that those characters are for Japanese Yosemite Sam to swear with. <laughs> to something, a, a more Ken and Robin, also a, a longer answer. So obviously ghost characters exist to express the inexpressible and to uh, uh, draw on the cosmic. And they are representative of uh, forces that we uh, cannot otherwise acknowledge. And if you stick enough of them in a document, you know, occasionally it'll just seem like a typo, but there's all sorts of ways for the illuminated, the ones who see, who can understand the words composed uh, with these kanji. So there's a whole sort of secret language. And I think probably it's safe to say that typically if there is a word that has any one of these ghost characters in it, uh, whether you're reading uh, Japanese or Chinese or Korean, and there's a word that has one of these kanji in it, you just can't a normal person just doesn't even notice it. Right. It's not yeah. even there. It's the fnord or the aclo that yeah. just sort of exists in the in the back part of your brain. Yeah, you can't even tell that the justification on the line is weird. Mm -hmm. It's just there. But for those who can see, it offers information from the Ur realm, from the uh, original. And, and I think even those archaic characters, you know, yeah, nice cover story. But in fact, you know, those places, I think, probably that have any of those non-standard characters are... Uh, definitely uh, mystic sites, uh, dare I say, feng shui sites. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that those are the the reason that they have these special one-off kanji is because they have special one-off powers. And that finding those those sites and mapping them probably traces not just your feng shui or, or key flow through Japan, but it may also map, you know, the places that the aliens touched down and gave us this meta language that we can only barely comprehend through these ghost kanji and uh, that you can't really speak in a human language. And those can be good aliens like in Arrival, or they can be Cthulhu aliens like in everything else. <laughs> and if they're Cthulhu aliens, the kanji could well be wards, right? Mm -hmm. That they are there as a protective measure in order to keep the aliens in, right? That the, the aliens are all around us, mm -hmm. uh, but we can't perceive them, uh, which is bad. But on the good side, they can't interact with us as long as there are enough of these documents that have the protective uh, wards in them. Right. And of course, it was essential during the sw literacy switch from the printed page to the internet that they be all over the internet. And therefore, the containment factor for all of these aliens has been uh, greatly increased. But were there to be an effort to expunge all of these from Unicode, that would be the thing that would then release the fact that we're, you know, living side by side uh, with aliens, which is to say fairies, which is to say ultra terrestrials. Right. So it is the in horror, seeing past is bad. You don't want to find out what's really going on. And so if you make an effort, for example, to 
go through an extensive list of documents, for example, a seven-volume set listing every place name in Japan, and remove all of these ward icons, kanji, that uh, that would enable them all to come back. And the places associated with them would be the landing strips, would be the uh, uh, the fairy circles, the places where they are uh, especially strong. So in fact, you have to make sure that there's enough chaos left in the language because a lot of that chaos is not chaos at all. It's the order that contains these things and keeps them in place. So you want to make sure that lexographers don't become too rigorous. So in fact, it may well be that atypically, the Chinese Communist Party was doing everyone a favor by introducing a bunch of weird junk into the language because, you know, they found something in the Gobi Desert and it's the, you know, the one bright spot on their resume. On the other hand, the language could be like William S. Burroughs assures us a virus. And by dumping it into Unicode, they're trying to spread the alien virus all over the world thanks to their own slovenliness. And again, totally out of character for the Chinese. But, you know, what you going to say? I do want to point up something that I found in Japanese Wikipedia that strikes me as a sort of a fun, wild, almost, dare I say, Cronenbergian vibe. One of the most perplexing characters shows up as the source of the names, and this is Wikipedia Translate, of Nippon Life Insurance Company. And I assume what they had was they had a whole list of people's names that had a life insurance policy that they ran through. But the way that it reads in Google Translate, speaking of linguistic snarls, is that the name of the company itself, Nippon Life Insurance Company, is somehow based on one of these ghost characters. And so this whole corporate structure you can imagine is built around their knowledge of and power over this one name, which by the way, Google translate translates as crow. No one told Google translate. It's not a known kanji, but there we are. And so you have this sort of life insurance company that has knowledge of one of these things at its beginning and is somehow connected to this or knowledge or this alien uh, mind virus or, or whatever it is, these demons, fairies, ultra terrestrials. I just feel like that, that is pregnant with with wild story possibility and that sort of grimy quotidian horror uh, where, you know, there's some sort of shadowy figures that are always messing with you, sort of a, a Burroughs-Cronenberg crossover. Maybe it's just me that thought that, but that very much struck me as pregnant and gameable, the notion right. of a creepy ACLO insurance company just sitting there in Tokyo and humming away as it has, uh, it turns out, since the 12th century or something. Well, I feel like the uh, polarity of this segment has been completely reversed because I left it to you to mention Burroughs and Languages of Iris and Cronenberg. <laughs> so before everything collapses, I think we'd better rush through this commercial to the next segment. The Best of Ask the Geln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Help this podcast flee the threat of underfunding by joining such benevolent backers as... Peter Williamson. Jeremy French. John Kingdon. Kevin J. Maroney. And Lewis R. Evans. The horror of the projector, the sight of the beams stabbing through the air, the smell of the popcorn popping the feel of whatever that is under our feet sticking to the floor as we move to the center seats in the center aisle of the cinema hut 
And today the Cinema Hut uh, is a silent Cinema Hut because we are beginning our science fiction film essentials series with part two, actually discussing films. Robin? Yes. So the the next 15 minutes will just be intertitles. Right. Yep. (laughs) Right. So as we talked about last week, science fiction, as we know it, science fiction cinema takes a while to rev up. So even though this is the science fiction essentials series, we have one essential in the silent era and arguably half a one uh, on top of that. And the rest of these are precursors. And so we're going to look at them for their historical interest. And if you have an independent desire to delve into the entire breadth of, of uh, science fiction, you can check these things out too. But I wouldn't go around, you know, recommending them as, as must-sees, with an exception that we're going to get to. The most obvious one, the one that starts every picture book on science fiction cinema, is George Melier's Trip to the Moon from 1902. It's an 18-minute silent film, and uh, you've undoubtedly seen uh, clips of it. It's a sort of a not-really-unlicensed adaptation of the Verne thing, but it's basically your prototypical space journey that uh, a rocket is prepared, a rocket is shot, the crew gets off, and then there's cavorting, on the uh, on world the that they land on, which in this case is the moon. The super famous shot is of the rocket hitting the man and the moon in the eye, like sort of having the rocket sticking out of him and him being... And you keep saying rocket, but of course, it being a Verne adaptation, it's a bullet. It's a shell right. from a space cannon. And so so that is your your basic trip to the moon story and, and the beginning of any look at science fiction films. And, and like many science fiction films from then till now, it is most... I think famous and most recommendable for the special effects, which at the time were pretty dramatic and for the visual imagination on display, not so much for the actual story, which as you say, is mostly just cavorting and uh, techno babble, right? Yeah. Uh, Melies was a stage magician uh, before he was a filmmaker and he used both stage magic tricks and in-camera tricks to create his special effects. Uh, he's usually sort of seen as the two branches of cinema of the one that is sort of the visual imagination, the one who plays with the fantastical in contrast to the Lumiere brothers who photographed regular ordinary things, which were also thrilling to audiences in, in those days. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can see his uh, uh, story fictionalized in the Martin Scorsese film uh, Hugo. And uh, he might just have a little cameo in an upcoming Yellow King thing that I'm doing. Uh, so the next one on, on the list is The Crazy Ray by René Clair uh, from France. Uh, he's a director who goes on a fair ways into the sound era and worked a lot in France. His most One of his most famous films is called Under the Roofs of Paris. Uh, during the war, he worked in Hollywood. So he made like The Ghost Goes West and I Married a Witch. But Ken, this is, I think, a pretty basic rudimentary story of of whimsy that's almost more off on the side of magic realism than really science fiction. But there's a mad scientist in it and a lever that goes in two directions. So I guess uh, it it sort of gets under the wire of of early science fiction. So why don't you describe it a bit more? Yeah, its French original title is Perry Key Door, which is literally Paris is Asleep. And you will see all manner of release years for it on the web and in various sources from 1923 to 1927. 23 is what Phil Hardy gives in the overlook encyclopedia of science fiction. So that's what I gave, but you may find it listed under at three twenty five, which is where you'll find it in IMDb, which is the American release title. Yep. And the story is that a man wakes up. He's the uh, attendant on the Eiffel tower. So he sleeps at the top of the Eiffel tower. He wakes up and discovers that all of Paris has been put to sleep and he wanders around and has adventures. And this is, I think the science fictional part of it is the man who wakes in an empty city is a trope that will redound over and over and over throughout science fiction film and in horror film, because of course it's, you know, 28 days later, as well as vanilla sky and a million other uh, movies. And so the presence of what if, and the what if being, at least plausibly technological or quasi-technological is, I think, what really makes it a science fiction film. What happens if you could do anything and you're the only man in the city? And that is a a big question that shows up, you know, in all kind of different forms throughout science fiction. The Crazy Ray is the first time that it showed up. So that's why it's important. So there's somebody who lives at the top of the Eiffel Tower uh, or works at the top of the Eiffel Tower. And there's a bunch of people who are on a plane when the Ray... Uh, hits everything below. So that's why there's six people running around and right. they do all the things that you would do. Uh, you know, they steal 
necklaces and money and they eat the food off of people's plates and they run around and then they get terribly bored and figure out what's going on and find the bad scientist and convince him to, you know, to undo it, <laughs> undo it. And then he redoes it and undoes it again. Right. And so it's, it's mostly a bit of, of, uh, whimsy and, uh, uh, I think a, a footnote both in science fiction and in the career of René Claire. Next, we have something that I think is also a footnote in that I think it's a more interesting as an example of early Soviet film than as uh, an example of early science fiction. And that's Alita, Queen of Mars from 1924 by a director named uh, Yakov Protozanov. Uh, this is an adaptation of a novel by the then active Russian popular uh, novelist uh, Alexei Tolstoy. And the novel is straight up visitors from our world visit another world. They uh, find there's a tyranny there and they get involved in its politics and they overthrow uh, the government. So it's, it's basically, you know, Russian Edgar Rice Burroughs, right? Mm -hmm. Or specifically Soviet Edgar Rice Burroughs, because, you know, you're going out there and bringing the revolution to other benighted planets. Right. Although how Soviet Tolstoy was, although he was, he left, uh, he was not a Bolshevik. He left after 1917. He came back later and they kind of gave him some uh, leeway, but he, he was not how Soviet he was. We, it's hard to say, but how Soviet the movie is, is extremely because uh -huh. clearly at some point in, in a meeting somewhere, the uh, commissar said, well, this screenplay you have about this uh, class struggle on, on Mars, uh, where people are wearing these cool, sexy costumes. That's interesting. But the problem is it's not enough about the everyday struggle of people to live up to the ideals of the revolution in the early years after the revolution. Can it be mostly about that? Yeah. <laughs> and so, indeed, that is what you get. It's uh, So, the science fiction aspect is relegated to uh, a dream sequence. It reminds you every time that it's just a dream. It's not Soviet materialism you're looking at. Mm -hmm. So, it cuts back and forth between this sort of ironic melodrama about, which is, in, in its way, sort of, you know, human and flexible in that it is looking at how hard it is for people to live up to the ideals of the revolution, unless you're, you know, the jarhead soldier guy who wants a fight and gets to punch some people on Mars in the dream sequence. Mm -hmm. But there's about 20 minutes of, of uh, science fiction, pretty standard stuff, some cool images, and uh, very modernist in the, this is from the period when uh, modernism was still considered to be uh, compatible with Soviet culture. It's right in the the break point between uh, Lenin and Stalin. And uh, so it's an interesting look at uh, that sort of brief uh, period where you are allowed to make art with a propagandistic purpose, not just straight up propaganda. Yeah. It's um, I think it's absolutely worth watching. I don't know if it's it lives up to every one of its 113 minutes, but I, you know, there's always something happening and the vision of Mars uh, as this sort of, you know, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Flash Gordon-y sort of, you know, corrupt monarchy. The fun part of it is actually the introduction of Soviet politics to that, that rather than the American notion where your job is to go and, and rise in the hierarchy of Mars until you become king of Mars and marry the prettiest princess of Mars, it's, no, we should overthrow the monarchy of Mars. We should, yeah. you know, we should elevate the Martian proletariat. That and when is, the princess starts to lead the revolution, you go, wait a minute. Yeah, you've <laughs> that's ruined it again. <laughs> but again, that's what happens with the Vanguard element, Robin. I don't have to tell you. So, so th there's a lot going on, but I think I certainly, when I watched it, I brought a lot of that to it in a way, but the people in 1923 were bringing a lot of that same baggage to the movie as well. So, I mean, again, this is very few of these are going to be timeless cinema classics that you will cherish forever. But I think, you know, all of them wind up repaying some degree of attention. I think Alita, because half of it is, as you point up, you know, fun science fictional action is at least a little more watchable than uh, some of the other longer narrative films of that era uh, that are a bit of a chore to get into, especially if they're just about, you know, social problems as opposed to kissing or fights. Right. And that's available with uh, English uh, intertitles and a decent print on uh, YouTube. So you can check that out if you want. Yep. Uh, so next we have one that I saw as a kid and just have my uh, childhood memories of. So, uh, but it's a classic story. So obviously the lost world from 1925, we know is uh, an adaptation of the Conan Doyle, Professor Challenger book about going and finding some dinosaurs and, uh, and those dinosaurs are uh, stop motion, beginning another exciting trend in cinema. Yeah, the uh, this is a movie that I actually saw at the Alamo Cinema in Austin, 
and they had a, a wild electronic uh, ensemble come in and play a, their own soundtrack, which is one of the fun things about seeing uh, Silence is you get someone who's playing their own soundtrack for it every time, ideally. And it was a trip. It was, first of all, it was just great to see it with a live soundtrack. I recommend anytime you have a chance to see a good silent with a, a live performance, go do that. And then it's just a fun dinosaur movie. It, I mean, I shouldn't have to sell dinosaur movies to this audience, <laughs> for God's sakes. Yeah, the, the fun dinosaur movie in Dinosaur Movie is silent. Exactly. And it's got Wallace Beery, you know, before his, he started making noises, but he's there as Professor Challenger. It's a good performance by him. Uh, the dinosaurs are great fun, and they add a bit where one of the dinosaurs gets loose in London and goes uh, racketing around, makes Tower Bridge fall in, and all kind of good fun with the with the dinosaurs uh, with the dinosaur in London. So it it really it's it's the first great spectacle movie, and it it, it like uh, Earth to Moon is based on a uh, on a novel, but this is not just. Oh, look at the moon. Look at the cavorting. This is action. This is something that's going on. I really, uh, again, it's not Jurassic Park. You will not be, you know, baffled into thinking that it is Jurassic Park, but it is for 1925, a great damn dinosaur movie. And if you see it, you know, with a couple of beers in you and a live orchestra, it is a great damn dinosaur movie and I will defend it. Right. And if it's the Alamo draft house, don't talk during the silent movie. Yeah. Don't do that. Yeah. And so, uh, now we come to the, the acknowledged masterpiece, the big dog on the list. And the first one that is set in the future. Now the caveat here is make sure you get the very recent restoration, which finds so much more additional footage that had been lost for decades and decades and decades that the previous version of Metropolis, you may know from having been seen in, you know, grade school or whenever it was, seems like a weird, incoherent dream. The newer <laughs> version makes sense as a as a story set in the future, a story of a dystopia, and of course, what's in every version, no matter how much the uh, different uh, prints cut out, is the uh, robot and the robot transformation that uh, tells this war very Fritz Langian story of being uh, the future is a trap and will basically reduce uh, most of the people to uh, servitude. So it's uh, his kind of art deco entrancing uh, version of the future. There are elements of it that are more fantastical than science fiction, but it's definitely the first great dystopian movie and one that in its restored form really holds up. Yeah. I mean, even in the sort of wildly sliced up versions there was a, a famously a Giorgio Moroder version with a Moroder EDM score that was just madness and made literally no sense. As you say, a half remembered fever dream at best, but it's great flaw was they added ridiculous colorization to it. But the imagery that Lang created is, is still super compelling. I have seen the 2010 restoration. I still feel like as a story, Metropolis maybe doesn't need to be two and a half hours long. <laughs> um, I, I, I enjoy watching it. I like what Lang is doing. This in many ways to me is one of the first real Fritz Lang movies where he sort of comes into his own. He gets to boss everyone around. He does everything the way that he wants it done. And it feels like a Lang movie in, you know, conversation with all of his other films. But I, I do think that the sort of, original conception of the film, which again comes from a novel is it's one of the first science fiction films that is making social commentary as, you know, a full on part of its cargo. As you say, Alita sort of, you know, hides that away by saying, Oh, it's a daydream. Metropolis owns it and says, this is a proper science fiction film, just like a proper science fiction book. It says, if this goes on, it says, you know, Let's take our world, the problems of our world, and let's throw it up in a, a larger-than-life science fictional framework, and, and let's see it play out to its disastrous conclusion, which is how we're going to happen. And it combines, as you say, that restoration, you do get more of a psychological insight into the in, into the main character, where he just sort of seems like a, a little puppet being bounced around by the plot in the chopped-up versions. And speaking of versions... There's a beautiful restored version of the movie that Lang makes two years later, uh, Woman of the Moon, on YouTube with English subtitles, with uh, no commercials, and it is three hours long. Yeah. And this one, I don't know if I would recommend finding a chopped up bad print of it, uh, but the first 90 minutes 
of this film about a uh, trip to the moon in a rocket where you go to the moon and things happen. The first 90 minutes the, is more sort of spy hijinks and very extended character uh, setup. So he's following on some of his early spy movies for parts of it. And the interesting twist is that the, the scientists and their crew are sort of coerced into continuing their moon mission by the uh, evil international gold cartel. Because they want the, the moon's gold. Is yes, what they because want. they want the, the gold on the moon. And it's only after all of that setup that you then start to see the elements fall into place of the space exploration movie. And it has, it shows you the numbers and the formulas and writing in the log books. And there's bad guys view a simulation of the flight and you see the whole thing. And so you get that romance of gear and hardware and also real math and numbers and science being used to make nonsense plausible. In this case, the nonsense being that there's an atmosphere on the other side of the moon. Yeah. Yeah. On one side of the moon. That's what we said. But again, this is Fritz Lang. His movies are all about being trapped. And you were in this case, you're not only trapped in the physical space, of this uh, rocket where everyone else who's been in this rock in a rocket trying to go to the moon has died. Uh, you're trapped there, but you're also trapped with the other people. So mm-hmm. it's not, again, the hopeful American version of space exploration and finding new frontiers and developing science. But no, you're going there for a greedy reason and uh, everything goes very badly awry because of the people you're stuck in the spaceship with. But it, it absolutely, I think even more so than Metropolis, does a lot of the things that we see time and again in science fiction movies, particularly spaceship movies, it does it first. And and uh, it's a pretty sophisticated uh, version of it. And it's also hard SF. At the time, there was at least a plausible theory that there was air on the far side of the moon. So that's why they don't have to have spacesuits when they're walking around on the far side of the moon. Hermann Oberth, the father of the German rocket program, was a technical advisor on the movie. So was Willy Ley. The uh, rocket scientist who defected after Hitler took over, you know, everyone at Werner von Braun's team, giant fans of the movie, the movie invented the countdown because Lang was said, the part where we wait for the rocket to launch is boring. (laughs) Let's add something. And that's why we have countdowns now. And elements of the of the rocket to the moon, either they invented them and von Braun copied them when he did them in American rocket programs or Von Braun's team invented them or Oberth invented them and Von Braun picked up on it for the NASA program. But it it's an unbroken line of descent from right. Herman Oberth. But Von NASA. Braun said, don't mention the gold on the moon. Just keep that on the down low. Well, that, you know- that Eisenhower knew we had to keep secret. Yeah, he was he was a canny devil was Dwight Eisenhower. So, yeah, this um this movie is, to my mind, the first hard SF film. And like many hard SF films, it is a bit of hard going <laughs> over, as you say, it's three hour runtime, but the rocketing elements are still visually captivating and amazing to watch. And I mean, the, the special effects are what they are, but there is not because the, the film is taken so seriously during the production. I think that it contains its own gravitas, even though, you know, it's a science, it's a silent made in 1929. And the performances are vivid and you you really care about uh, the characters. And and so when things go badly, you you feel for them. It's not just a a gearhead exercise. And and the production design is uh, really good and terrific because, again, Lang had great people to do that for. Right. So that's the silent era. Next week, we're going to return where there's going to be a lot of glossing over. Yeah. So, but we'll do <laughs> there, that when there we There may be a it. whole decade that drops out next time. Right. Okay. So we're going to uh, rock it into the uh, sound era next week. But before that, we're going to rock it into the other segment that remains in this here uh, podcast. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation... Ugh! 
in Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret Eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a foreword by Ray, plausibly deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the nirvana of Nyarlatho Tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. The whirring of chronotons and the clacking of time gears tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the vehicle that Ken's superiors at Time Incorporated used to send him back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time around, serious kudos to uh, beloved backer Philip Masters, who really gets his money's worth of his generous donation, Ken, because he is handing you a question that... I think basically just to explain what happened in our world that we'll, we'll feel like we're in a time machine because it will take you so long to explain that when you're done, we will be in the future. Because in his typical succinct way, uh, Phil drops the following bomb. What does Ken propose to do about the Schleswig-Holstein question? Ken? <laughs> well, um, put it down and ignore it is, is what I propose to do with it, but... We have a, a, a duty on this podcast, uh, Robin. We have a dedication. Yes. And, and, and I'm glad that it starts out with a quip right. from Lord Palmerston. Lord Palmerston. Because I'm just like two blocks away from a street named after him, a pretty swanky street. And I was glad to discover while researching this that he was a bit of a cut up. And so his quip is... Easily, easily Britain's third funniest prime minister, I would say. <laughs> Lord Palmerston used to say, because... People would come up to him without even the pretext of having a podcast. They didn't give him any Patreon money for asking. And ask him about the Schleswig-Holstein question. And he, he would say that only three persons knew the truth of the Schleswig-Holstein question. Only three persons understood it. One was Prince Albert, who unfortunately was dead. The second was a Danish statesman who had gone mad. And the third was Lord Palmerston, and he had forgotten all about it. And that <laughs> That's the is, best non-answer uh, at least of the 19th century. That's how you get elected prime minister over and over and over again, despite a compelling interest in the lives of fallen women, which Lord Palmerston also had. So anyway, Schleswig is the northern of two duchies, which are between Denmark and Germany. And exactly what that fraught phrase means is the rest of the question. Holstein is the second, or Holstein is the second of those, the southernmost of those two duchies. Where the cows come from. Where the cows come from. So, the boundary between Schleswig and Holstein is the Eider River. At the east end of the Eider is the immense and excellent port of Kiel. And in 811 AD, the boundary is first established between Schleswig and Holstein, or between Denmark and Germany. And there are immense numbers of wars and backsass and marches and countermarches but the boundary basically stays where it stays. Right. So in 1460, the people of Schleswig and Holstein, the parliaments of those two duchies, realized that having wars break out over their boundary every 10 years is terrible for business. Borders are trouble. Borders are trouble. They set up something called the Treaty of Reba. And the Treaty of Reba in 1460 says Schleswig and Holstein, first of all, will be unified under the personal rule of the King of Denmark. But Holstein will stay in Germany. So Germans shut up. The King of Denmark will be a German. Uh, he will owe Holstein to the emperor at this point, the Holy Roman Emperor, but he'll get to run it. But also the land in the two provinces will be chopped up and moved around such that individual sub duchies and shares of everyone's inheritance will get so bollocked up that it will be impossible to untangle the uh, land ownership. That's Therefore, the kind of careful, complicated compromise that lasts forever. It does. And in this case, it did last 400 years, which That's is not, not bad. bad. 
Yeah. Not bad. So the uh, so the good people of uh, Schleswig and Holstein sat back, or rather their parliaments did, saying, well, I guess as the only people who now know where all the boundary lines are, I guess we have to run everything. Too bad. And the king of Denmark said, as long as you pay the taxes, I could care less. But times change, Robin. In 1848, during the national wave of uh, exuberance, the king of Denmark announces that there's going to be a new national constitution for Denmark. We're all going to have a good parliamentary constitution. I'm going to be a constitutional monarch. And as part of this, we're just going to sort of regularize all these old feudal nonsenses, including Schleswig, which as part of Denmark should be part of Denmark and be a province of Denmark, just like, you know, everything else is. And the good folks of Schleswig, who by this time mostly spoke German, said, but we're German, we're not Danish, we don't want to be under the Danish parliament, we like our own parliament, which, you know, keeps everyone nice and uh, soapy. Right, we have different cheeses that we prefer. Exactly. It's a whole whole bunch of different questions. You know, we're not so fond of mermaids, frankly. Lots of differences. Um, so there is a war, and the people of Schleswig sort of rise up against Denmark. Uh, it leads to the first Schleswig War, which Prussia marches in and involves itself in. Um, because Prussia at this point is trying to basically curry favor with the German National Confederation, which is the German Confederation that by this time has replaced the Holy Roman Empire. Napoleon got rid of that. The German Confederation is feeling his oats. It's trying to be the voice of all German people, especially the German people in Schleswig. And so the Prussians say, let's you know, get out in front so that they don't notice that we're run by an absolute monarch. Right. And, and the 19th century is the time when everybody starts going, oh, wait a minute, there's a thing called nationalities and people's language matters and all people who speak the same language and have the same culture. Naturally, they would go in their own countries and also then fight all the other countries with different nationalities. Precisely. And that is the, what this is one of many of. Well, it turns out that Denmark may not be what it was in Viking times, but it can still thump Prussia in the face. And especially it can do so once Russia and Britain start saying, you can't invade Denmark. That's against the rules. We need Denmark as a weak neutral country so that we can send uh, ships back and forth to the Baltic. So that's off. So basically the British negotiate and I don't want to say dictate, but they negotiate a piece called the London Protocol. And the London Protocol says Schleswig and Holstein, just like the Treaty of Reba says, are not dividable and that they will be passed down by the heirs of the King of Denmark and they will be governed by the laws of their own duchies. They're not going to be governed by other kind of laws. And that has worked for 400 years. Why can't you people just shut up? That's basically the London Protocol, is why can't you people just shut up? <laughs> yeah, that's, I could turn this car around. Exactly. Well, the trouble is that even as they're signing the London Protocol, far-seeing figures say, the King of Denmark, Frederick VII, doesn't have any children. And the trouble is that Denmark is not under the Salic law that forbids inheritance through the female line, but Germany is. And so the result is that Holstein will have a different heir to the throne than Schleswig will. And only one of those guys is going to be the king of Denmark, no matter who Denmark picks. So this is sort of the storm clouds on the horizon and Everyone thinks, well, surely no one would be such a jerk as to stir up those waters and start yet another war over this stupid question. But they forget Otto von Bismarck exists. And Bismarck is looking for ways to enhance Prussian glory and also get his hands on that sweet, sweet port at Kiel. So Bismarck whips up the nationalist German factions of the German Confederation to support the Salic heir to Holstein, Frederick of Ostenborg. And Frederick of Ostenborg, basically being egged on by Prussia and uh, the German nationalists, claims to be the heir to Schleswig and Holstein in 1863. The new Danish king, Christian IX, says, uh, no, I am in charge of Schleswig and Holstein. And also, because they just had a war over their nice constitution, the Danish are now mad as hell and are not going to let Schleswig 
go to Germany. And so they say, if you're going to be our king, Christian the ninth, you'd better sign a constitution that actually makes Schleswig a part of Denmark and makes it under Danish law and regularizes this situation. And of course, signing that would violate the London protocol. But Christian the ninth says, I would rather be king of Denmark and have my Danish people like me than knuckle under to the Prussians. And so he signs the November constitution. This gives Prussia the fig leaf that it needs to intervene in Schleswig and Holstein. And this is the clever bit that Bismarck pulls. He goes to Austria and says, well, Austria, you're in charge of the German Confederation. Prussia is just a, a simple country member of the German Confederation. We we aren't the boss. Surely you're going to lead Germany in taking its rightful possessions in Schleswig and Holstein. Aren't you Austria? Or do you hate Germans? And the Austrians are sort of backed into the corner and they say, oh, no, no, no. We love Germany. We love being in charge of Germany. Ask anyone. Yeah. And so we're right next door. We're neighbors. Right. Uh, well, they were German. The, you know, Austria speaks German. Yeah. It's German. The, the whole thing. It, it takes a it takes a meaner man than Bismarck to say Austria is not German. And so the Austrians come in and intervene with Prussia. And once more, now Prussia and Austria are invading Denmark. This is a more one-sided war. Britain wants the whole thing to go away and quite frankly is still on the theory that if Prussia's strong, it'll be a thumb in the eye to France because they're still mad at France. So Britain does not force a peace the way that they did in 1852. The Russians likewise are, you know, uh, busy uh, recovering from the Crimean War. They don't have the muscle to force a peace. So you wind up with a situation where after a very brief war, Schleswig and Holstein are turned over. They're taken away from Denmark and they're turned over to be jointly governed by Prussia and Austria. And Prussia says, great, Austria. Glad you're our partners at running Schleswig and Holstein. We're neighbors. Yes. And guess what we're going to do? We're going to build that giant naval base at Kiel because we're partners. And the Austrians are like, uh, we did not sign on to this. And Bismarck then in flames, wow, dare the Austrians hold down the good German people of Schleswig with their failure to let them build a tax-producing naval base. And that leads to the Austro-Prussian War, which gets Austria kicked out of the German Confederation, which leads to the creation five years later of the German Empire and gigantic win for Otto von Bismarck. And I don't need to maybe remind everyone, but I will, that that then leads to a gigantic L not just for everyone else in the world, but also eventually for Germany, because World War One, World War Two, etc., etc., etc. So, so that's the preamble. <laughs> yes, that's that's the intro. Right. We are now as wise as Prince Albert. <laughs> yeah. So, is the solution then to find, you know, a, a sort of a bright spark of a time displaced orphan and uh, uh, drop him? as the heir to uh, Frederick Seventh, That is one of my three possible solutions. All of my solutions involve monkeying with the course of true love and babies. So just keep this in mind, time incorporated. Right. So if you can't, if you can't have a baby made, you can find someone in the but time stream. Back in the day, in, in olden days, when, for example, Louis Thirteenth was not able to produce an heir uh, for whatever reason, Cardinal Mazarin stepped up, took one for the team, and sure enough, Louis Fourteenth is the result. Now, I'm not saying I have to bring Cardinal Mazarin from the past. I'm just saying maybe Charlotte Marianne of Mecklenburg-Strelitz at some point in her contentious and annoying marriage to Frederick VII might be interested in having a baby with somebody, and Frederick VII, not actually caring one whit about Charlotte Marianne, wants an heir. So I feel like with goodwill, you could arrange a baby that would be the, the new king of Denmark, a, a lovely Frederick VIII of Denmark. I feel like this could happen. Now, again, Time Incorporated may be a little iffy about producing babies out of wedlock. They've got, you know, the Pope is involved stuff. So my other proposal is that the whole reason Schleswig and Holstein are tied together in the first place is because Abel, Duke of Schleswig, married Matilda of Holstein in 1237. Now, Abel, the Duke of Schleswig, was a bad person, and he murdered the King of Denmark and then became King of Denmark. And the people of Denmark said, his name may be Abel, but he's Cain. <laughs> that was hilarious in 1237 or 1250, which is when he actually murdered the King of Denmark. 
but maybe you could break that marriage up. Maybe get Matilda, you know, into horses or something, or get Abel shoved off a dock. Anything that ends that marriage, then you don't have to tie Schleswig and Holstein together. Schleswig can just stay with Denmark. Holstein can go to Germany. Everyone's a winner, except the parliaments of Schleswig and Holstein, which just have to suck it up. But again, that leads to more border wars and, and back sass and, and problems. So my third possibility is Charles Frederick is the Duke of Holstein Gottorp, which is one of the bits of Holstein. This is in the mid 18th century when exactly who owns what part of Holstein is still sort of up in the air. And he marries sort of spotty as it were. Exactly. As it were, he marries in our history, Anna Petrovna, the daughter of Peter the great, which gives Russia a claim to Holstein, which solves no one's life and makes everything worse. But the Russians, <laughs> Catherine, the great did not get to be the great by being ridiculous. So she said, I don't want any part of Schleswig and Holstein and signs away the Russian government's right to it in the treaty of Sarskoya Cello. Yes, so, if you're too much trouble for Catherine the Great, you're too much trouble. You're right. But I feel like if we get Frederick married off to someone who wants to stay in Schleswig-Holstein, like, say, the daughter of the Emperor of Austria, Emperor Joseph I of Austria, Maria Amalia, who in our timeline marries the King of Saxony or the Elector of Saxony, and there's a big kerfuffle over can she marry the Elector of Saxony because he's not a Catholic and because she has to accept the pragmatic sanction that disinherits her. But Frederick, the Duke of Holstein Gottorp, is also plausibly a claimant to the throne of Sweden. And that might make the Emperor Joseph say, you know what, I'll gamble a stamp. Let's marry Maria Amelia off to Frederick, Duke of Holstein Gottorp. And then Austria really has skin in the game. And instead of being bullied by Prussia into fighting a war over Schleswig and Holstein, goes up and settles the question of who runs Holstein in the Congress of Vienna when everything is being settled out anyway, and all manner of old treaties are being thrown out. And I believe that if Austria has a plausible claim to Holstein, then Austria winds up not just with Holstein, but keeps the Prussians out of Kiel, which by itself probably prevents World War I. So I feel Worth like the effort. that's maybe that's maybe a bit of a bit of a, a, a bank shot, bit of a, a corner shot uh, from across the table, if you will. Well, normally we spend some time thinking of uh, gaming applications for the uh, period of history that you've interfered with. Uh, but because this required so much exposition, I'm just going to say drama system. It's a royal period drama about who marries who and what the political implications are. There you go. So <laughs> if you also, if you want to read um, a sort of adventurous version of this, the uh, Flashman novel, Royal Flash puts Flashman in a fictional duchy in between Schleswig and Holstein, but it covers the same sort of ground. And that becomes the Flashman remake of uh, Prisoner of Zenda, which is great fun uh, by itself. And so if you're looking for sort of a Castle Falkensteiny swords and capes version, that's uh, your template there. Right. And there's wars and stuff that your character yeah, has swords wars, are into. Whatever. Um, well, on, on that a somewhat perfunctory note, it's time for us to uh, close up this episode, but we'll be back next week with more of the similar. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. Impro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Sapol. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Protect this podcast from Unicode Spectres alongside such canonical backers as... Toonspew. James V. Nutley. Jason Krauss. Ryan Mannix. And Scott Jones. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our new classic design, Unicorn with a Better Armor Class. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>